Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. This time out, we crank up the old Subaru, head to the Midcoast, and meet up with Mr. Wiscasset, Ken Monnet, who co-hosts on this episode, and we interview Scott Chabuck. Now, as cool as it is to hear stories from the 40s and 50s and 60s, it's, uh, you know, there's something about listening to history that either you witnessed or that you were around. And Scott's stories are full of 90s, 2000s. In fact, this episode, we start things off talking about how Scott got his start in racing, move up through some of the championship years, uh, an interesting exchange, a few of them actually, with Stan Meserve. And it all leads up to the Big Dog. The Big Dog 400, that one-off show at Wiscasset Speedway, which... If you've only heard about it, we'll break down what happened that day and, uh, yeah, pretty controversial. This podcast is a product of Maine Vintage Race Car Association. Thank you so much for your support. Subscribe to us for less than $2 a month. When you do that, it helps us preserve the history of racing in Maine, helps us pay for insurance for the Mobile Museum, uh, helps us pay for tires. You know, just keep that thing on the road. Simple things like that. Storing the artifacts costs $3,000 a year. Giving you a couple of hard facts, hard figures on where your contributions go. Now, as far as this podcast goes, uh, the club does not incur any of the cost, even though it is a product of Maine Vintage Race Car Association. And if you're able to support this particular podcast that helps me out, helps keep it going, we buy products, uh, upgrade equipment, and hey, price of gas. You've heard about that, right? Yup. So uh, thanks for your support as we travel around the state of Maine, connecting the dots of Maine racing history. Here we go. Stage number one of Scott Chabuck on Open Trailer Podcast. Thank you, Scott, uh, for uh, being on Open Trailer Podcast today. You know, we scour the state for all different people who have, um, you know, accomplished greatly in the state of Maine, uh, whether it's Beach Ridge, whether it's Unity, Speedway 95, how we've had some people from uh, the county. The Alexanders have been on there, too. But we're here in Wiscasset on a cold January afternoon to interview one of the top competitors of certainly the 90s, the 2000s, and someone who's still at it today, uh, Mr. Scott Shabuck is on the Open Trailer Podcast. Welcome today. Thank you for having me. And uh, joining me is Mr. Wiscasset himself. This guy is uh, certainly uh, the, unsight- the the Kenopedia when it comes to uh, this facility and, and has helped me greatly with, uh, you know, putting this whole thing together today. Uh, promoter and uh, lead announcer at Wiscasset Speedway, Ken Monnet. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for coming back up here to Wiscasset. How did you guys meet? Tell me about your first, your, your first meeting with Scott. Do you remember that, Ken? Uh, it was really when I started here myself, um, the end of the 1992 season. 
Um, I'm obviously trying to get my bearings as a new announcer. Really hadn't spent a whole lot of time around racing, so I was learning from the ground up. And you're obviously trying to latch on to who who's the big dog in these at the racetrack at the time. And you know, you had your Kenny Wrights. You had you know, Mike Rowe won his championship here in '91, so everyone was talking about that. But the name Scott Chabot kept coming up too. You got to watch this guy. He's a wheel man. He's exciting to watch. And and obviously that's what the fans want to see too. It's not just who's doing stuff, but who's who's getting the fans' attention. And he's about your age too. Yeah. So I'm sure that really helped. Uh, you know, the the two of you kind of bond uh, in your early days. Uh, Scott, you're where are you from originally? Bath, Maine. So. Um, you're, you know, you, so you're a, you're a mid coast guy. You've been a mid coast guy. Always your, have been, yes. Your entire life. I would say that you probably grew up around West Cassis Speedway. Yes, my uncles raced in the early seventies until mid seventies, and I always come to the races and watched. I remember we always used to go to church on Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and they'd lo- have the race guys loaded, and we'd head to West Cassis, and I'd go in the grandstands and watch the races, and they'd go yeah. in the pits. Uh, who were the people that you really watched uh, aside from those two when you first uh, when you first came to Wiscasset? Busta Grover and Elaine Grover and now a lot of our guests are like the first time I was at a racetrack I knew that's what I wanted to do for you what was that like? I think I knew it before when I was because I was always climbing in and out of the cars I used to paint the roll cages and right. a brush and rust oleum and that's all I ever wanted to do I never played any sports I just was around racing around race guys what were you interested in in school getting out of it and going to work <laughs> on race guys <laughs> really but was there there wasn't a certain subject that uh, aside from you know the trades or whatever that uh, that jumped out at you anything that you probably you find? Gu- probably girls <laughs> girls yeah home economics uh-huh. yeah <laughs> i did take that uh, now where did you graduate from morse high 86 right. and when does when does your driving career start to come into focus I had built in my parents' garage in 84. I had started, I cut a roof off, put a cage in a 70 Camaro. Mm-hmm. Never really finished it, sold that. And I don't think I started till 85. I built another Camaro and raced street stock. How many years had you been coming to Wiscasset Speedway before you drove for the first time? I had to have been 10 because I mm-hmm. know I was coming in 77 or sooner. So what was it like the first time that you went on? Like was it a was it a moment where you just you you, you couldn't believe what was happening or was no, it, just, it was unreal. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was a big racetrack. It was a great feeling. Did you do any kind of like I did when I was in my late teens? Did you do any street racing on the back roads to kind of get get yourself ready to come out here on the track? Yeah, we used to tear around a little bit. Where where was the spot to go? In Woolwich, the back roads, the mountain road, and yeah, middle road. What was your uh, what was your first car? Not non race car. I actually a seventy Camaro. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I still have one now. I had to have another one. I ne- that was another car that I bought. It was rusty. Never, never got it on the road and sold it. Really. Now, how soon did you get your first win? Now, like, my statistical history of Scott Chabuck picks up from the early 90s, but in conversations we've had in the past, you actually started racing here back when it was Superior Speedway. Yes. Did did the success come early, or did, did you kind of... I won races knocks? in my first season, and I can remember I had built a Camaro with an old cage and another car, and it was a low-budget street stock class, but... And I did it low budget, but I had won a couple races. And then when it was Superior Speedway, I'd won 
some races. You said you did it low budget. It seems like the main ingenuity kind of comes in. Now, to kind of paint the background picture, um, we'll have to take a picture of the way the microphone, the boom microphone is set up here because this is all Scott Shabak right Engineering here. at its best right Like, I, I would have to have either, I would be holding it for Ken right now if it weren't for you here because within 15 seconds of saying, well, I don't think this is going to work, Scott said, well, let's put it up on the vice. And let's try it this way and let's clamp it this way. Where does that practicality come from? Like, were you influenced by your father? What was your upbringing like? My uncles Mm. are working around the shop. As long as I remember, I could usually get something so it could work and get us either through the night or get us back home or whatever it took. Yeah. So um, you start forging a career right around this time that you, um, kind of goes parallel to your career. What, What was your main vocation where did you work uh, through high school I worked in a restaurant then I worked at a lumberyard and then as soon as I graduated I went from like five dollars an hour went into the shipyard at nine and I spent 35 years there wow. what was that first restaurant like what did you do there did you just... I was a dishwasher behind the <laughs> just not fun or it was you... actually the bounty tavern it was pretty fun actually yeah. oh cool man so what do you remember about your first race <sighs> You know, it's weird to me, like someone who races 35 years, um, you know, it's amazing to me that people, when they do what they do, they don't remember any of it. You know what I mean? Like to me, that would be like something I look forward to my whole life Mm -hmm. and I'm always going to remember my first time racing. But he's not the first person that we've interviewed that has talked about that overwhelming feeling when you roll up onto this racetrack for the first time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was probably scared to death, but I think one of the first times I had raced was in the, Kenny Wright was I, when I was helping him. This is early 80s. They actually had a mechanics race, and I got in the car that I had been working on and running in a mechanics race. Wow. And that was, of course, I was in somebody else's equipment then, so it... Yeah, and you had your uncles, you know, kind of as your base. Did they help you set up your car and kind of help you figure out the racetrack at all, or were you on your own? No, they had quit racing in the late 70s, and then Leo Tanga, which was my first car owner, after I would built my first couple myself, but he was in Bath, and I raced with him, and I, I was actually old enough to get in the pits, and then was working on cars with him until early like 81, 82, and then I ended up in high school with Kenny and went to his place in Woolwich, mm. and that's where I built my first car. Ken, what do you remember about Wes Cassett during, the, uh, during those Kenny Wright days and, and, and Scott coming up? Uh, it, it, one thing I remember is it, the, the, mid, the early to mid-90s and even into the late-90s, it was probably the last great heyday of Wes Cassett. I'm proud to say this track is making mm. a nice comeback now, but... When all cylinders were clicking, uh, car counts, the the quality of the racing on the track, the names that were out there racing, mm-hmm. um, the days that Scott and and the guys were dominating at this track was was a, a time that this track uh, really was clicking. Yes. So, trying to look up Wiscasset Speedway history is is a little hard prior to like say 1990 Ken you've done an amazing job at backtracking everything 
But I, bring, I ask this question or I bring this topic up because for someone who's rooted in the community, who's forging a racing career, like when you're racing, is it just for fun or do you think you're going to go somewhere? I never really, I thought I'd be in street stocks forever, but I made it, Hinkley called up and I moved out, but I was just looking to race and have fun and win races. So how hard was it for the inconsistency of ownership at Wiscasset to, to really get any ground? It wasn't for me because once it opened, after we'd run Unity for two years and come back and it opened up with Dave, mm. the best part of my career was that 10 or 12 years that it was top notch, like Ken says. Which is where Ken really starts to come in. Uh, what was it about Dave St. Clair, Boss Hog St. Clair, that you know, bringing his name into this track and that consistency made it the heyday of Wiscasset for you? I think it was the place being closed and he opened it back up and there was Friday night racing and everybody was looking for a place to race and that was a thing to do for that. It's changed now. It's it's awesome now, but it's just mm. it's so much more to compete with. And and Dave was just an old school racers racer. Right. He knew it back then. Uh, the race itself was the show. Now there's a little more to the the product that you're putting out to the right. fans. But back then, Dave knew that the race was the show, and and he put all the amenities into updating the, the the pits new pit tower making sure the drivers had what they wanted so uh that's and, and drivers flocked into this place uh, once he reopened it mm-hmm. so uh scott you said you uh you moved up from street stocks uh how did that transition happen i was ra- i was racing with leo we had raced unity we come here leo raced the car in 91 and 92 we built a new car we won the championship 93, we were probably, we got thrown out the first week for an illegal pass. Well, that brings us to our first story. <laughs> you don't just get thrown out because you don't have money to get into the pits. Usually right. you have money to get into yeah. the pits and something happens. We had money to get in the pits, but we had the wrong intake. Oh. So. Well, that 92 season was your first really big breakout big, yes. year. I mean, yeah. 10, 10 wins and a championship, yeah. and uh, that's Wait. when you really started hitting your stride. I want to I backtrack just a second. So you had a, the, an intake issue. <laughs> How do you end up having being thrown out of the racetrack from a technicality? Like, something has to have happened in between. Well, I think people found out we had the intake. It was a Brzezinski intake, two-barrel intake. It was, probably wasn't much of an advantage. Probably wouldn't even need to be on there, but we had it right. on the car. And Usually, Ken, wouldn't you just say, <laughs> you know, come, like, d- d- come back next week, but you're not totally kicked out? Well, the problem with that was the tech man would have said that, yeah. but Leo wasn't about taking the intake off the <laughs> Right. He didn't want to take the intake off the motor at the tracks. So. How much are you guys spending on uh, on racing at that point for the year in the early 90s? I think we spent like $2,800 just to have that motor rebuilt, which seemed like a ton yeah. of money. Right. So I can see why he would not want that. <laughs> but we were scraping and we did what we did and had a few sponsors. Hmm. Who were um, some of the first people to, uh, to help you out sponsorship-wise? Bert's Exxon was on the car. With Leo, and of course, Leo owned the car. I don't think there's many other sponsors. Did Jay Lamoureux come into the picture? Jay didn't come in until we went with Hank. Yeah. Dresden Cash Fuel. That was all with Hank. Yeah. Now, you did do, in between the street stock and the and racing with Harold, uh, you did one year in the what we called limited sportsman at the yes. time, which probably be closely equivalent yeah. to what our super streets are now. Actually, I, was, I finished second for that championship in 93 and late in the season hink had got back into racing and built a late model with jimmy fields 
Harold had built a late model and was running with Jimmy Fields, and Jimmy Fields had got so he, he something come up and he couldn't race anymore. So I had heard through the grapevine that Hank wanted me to drive his car, and he lived up on the Shea Road right behind the racetrack. So me and one of the crew members drove up, and Hank was leaving at the time, and I looked over at him and says, hey, you want me to drive your race car? He says, what the? Makes you think I want you to drive my car and drove off. What? what? <laughs> just, yeah. just, so, like the Dukes of Hazard. Just so the audition went really well. Really yeah. well. Wow. So, and then I drove that car a little bit at the end of 93, and then we built the car for late models for 94. Now, I, I've, I've mentioned this in, in your company before, um, so I know you're not going to take this as an, in, as an insult or anything, but back in those early 90s when you were coming up through the street stocks and the, the limiteds and your first couple of years in the pro stocks, you were what I called a brash kid. You, you know, it, it borderlined on cockiness. It, 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 there was, I could not find a more confident driver in this pit than Scott Chabuck. So in 19- Where did that come from? Is yeah. that just... It may have acted that way, but I under, <laughs> underneath I wasn't. But I just wasn't afraid to put the car in there and try to win a race. Did he rustle the feathers of the veterans of the time? I rustled the feathers of the defending champion the first race of the 95 season. Who was that defending champion? Stan Missouri. No. Oh. no. It was, oh, uh, 95. I'm sorry. 95 was it when? Was, it was Johnny Marsh. Yes. Jason we got Marsh. into it because I thought I had the hole underneath him, and I probably didn't, and <laughs> on opening day. Opening day. We had bought a car. We went to Long Island, New York, and bought a race car. And it was a Camaro. So we put most of the new body parts on it. Hink says, oh, we'll have this for spares throughout the season. We used most of that the first week. You know, um, Ken, you bring up uh, young and brash and, and not afraid to speak his mind. And we're talking about 1995, 1994. Well, if we look at the stats, we see 10 wins in 1992 in the street stocks. So probably when you start winning that early, because you're probably, what, your early 20s at that point, 1992, you were, yes. what, 22, 24? Yeah. Um, that, you know, and when, how well received were you by the crowd at that point when you had won 10 races in that year? Then it was still pretty good as we went into 96 and won a bunch of pro stock races and had some issues with some different people that changed. There was a lot of booze then, but I loved it. Well, and, <laughs> that's what I love. I, I wanted to. I'm glad you mentioned that because, I, again, this I say this from a point of admiration. Mm-hmm. I I liken Scott Chabuck as as Wiscasset Speedway's version of Dale Earnhardt. That Scott was our intimidator. Um, not. I never honestly never heard anybody say Scott Chabuck's a dirty driver, but Scott Chabuck was always an aggressive and intimidating driver, yes. and that's a big difference in my book. Um, and and you went head to head with some of the top names yes. in pro stock racing back there in the mid nineties. I, yes. I kind of made a list of the guys you raced regularly against back then, the likes of Stan Meserve, Kenny Wright, John Fippen, Jim McCallum. Uh, Jimmy Burns, Mike Rowe. I mean, how did, how did it feel to be a young kid? Ralph going, Mason. Ralph Ooh. Mason, yes, the number 10. Yeah. Uh, how did it feel to be trying to go up against these yeah, guys? It was pretty much unbelievable to be out there at the time. I found myself in some races thinking that, that you're out here with these guys. And now to look back on it that I raced with, like Jeff Stevens, I had a race with him at Bangor and stuff. Wow. It's just that I run with all these guys and I'm still racing. It's pretty unbelievable, I think. 
So I mean, what's what's your week like at this point? You know, in the we're talking like early nineties. Your, your work week, your your schedule with um, you know, with your personal life, with the racing, with uh, Bath Ironworks. When do you have time to work on the race car? It was a forty hour week, and then I was I was on between first and second shift. So it was when you weren't at work and with the family, you were in the garage. Mm. So Bath Ironworks, huge employer. I'm sure a lot of race fans, a big crossover. And you mentioned the transition of uh, the crowd on your side to the crowd not necessarily being on your side come the mid-90s. Did any of that carry over into work? Anybody play pranks at you at work or say anything? No, not really. Throw no. dead fish in your locker or something? No, no? Well, nothing that bad. No. So we, uh, we move ahead to, to 1996. and we um, Was that the championship year, Ken? Yes. Okay. Yep. You know, we're looking through the stats, Scott, and we see, you know, we got a bunch of wins, but we don't see a championship really come into play until the mid-90s. What was different about 1996? Equipment. We had got a new car from Taylor. I mean, it, it was Dan Reserve then, but right. we had got a new car from Distance, and it worked. Who Who was the guy on Long Island that you had gotten the car from prior? I, I don't even know his name. Stan had hooked us up and told us. If you go down and look at it, take a trailer with you because I know you're going to buy it. So yeah. we hopped on the ferry and two burgers, and two beers on yeah, the way Yeah, and out. that's kind of where the, the H&C Outlaw Gang yes. was born. Um, kind of talk about that whole persona. Yeah. That kind of built into the whole Intimidator image. Right. I'm not sure who came up with that, but it, it stuck and they had hats and shirts and H&C Outlaw. Now, who was, who was on this team, this band of badasses? It was me, Harold. Jay Lamro, Mike DeHan, Gerald Sproul. I'll miss somebody. I looked at the picture last night. But. Was Leo still with you then? No, no. Leo was. I don't even think Leo was coming to the races then. We got back together later on. But You mentioned Stan Meserve about three or four times already. And, you know, he's certainly a major figure in, in motorsports, not necessarily just in Maine, but all throughout the Northeast. Um what was his influence on you? Uh, he he was pr- probably pretty hard on me as a driver. We, we'd have pep talks, and he'd give me some pointers on what to do and what not to do. After racing. Yeah. After racing. <laughs> uh, one time right at Unity, the, my first pro stock year, we were in a heat race. And, mm. of course, his shop was right up the road on the track, and there was a skirmish. And I was back a couple cars, and there was a guy from Canada that started the whole thing. But my drag link ended up bent. And Stan was in the wreck, and he had a problem, and we needed a drag link. And I said, you take us up to your shop and get a drag link? He says, uh, why should I do that? You just wrecked me. And, uh, that ain't the way I saw it. <laughs> yeah. so, and me and Hank went up the next week, and Hank said, do you, you want us to bypass me? You want us to race with you, too? And we just, it went away from then, and everything was fine. What was Stan's um, lineage as far as his NASCAR stuff? Um, he like trying to figure out like what he was at that point. Uh, well, he went, uh, obviously, NASCAR racing uh, back in the late 60s. But mm. uh, his last championship was here was Cassett Speedway in 1995. Uh, so I would reckon that you had grown up watching he, he him. He was uh, oh, driving yeah, for, for sure. Paul Watts for at sure. the time. Now, what was it like to have that figure? The, tell me about the first time that you remember Stan Meserve standing in front of you saying, hey, do this, or oh, you did it, that. It was intimidating. The first race I won in 95 in the Pro Stock, it was early in the season. We were all lined up behind him, and he had a flat right rear tire. And the whole field was intimidated and just slowed down forever. <laughs> and then I finally stepped out and passed him easy because he was slowing down because of a tire. But, of course you did. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, just, that's that's the, the deal with 
be being willing to step up and go mm. toe to toe with these these heavyweights. How long did you wait before you made that pass? Oh, I bet it was five or six laps. We were mm. going pretty slow. I remember. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, and he uh, he actually still finished third. Chris Fork and him, the other rookie, passed with me, but we finished first and second. But did he ever give his side of that? And I can't believe it took you guys this he did, long. Right there in victory lane. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. You know, so we go through uh, we go through the '90s, and then we get to the early 2000s, and that's where a lot of the big stats really start to stack up. Um, actually, going back a little bit to to the '90s, you you actually won what three championships three in, a in a row, '96, '7, and '8. Mm. Then all of a sudden, you guys decided to go up the road to Oxford for a year. What was the thinking behind wanting to do that? And that was all a sponsorship deal. We had the tires weekly paid for up there, and it was we pretty much hated it we'd come back here and sit up on the hill and watch the races it was hard to do but the tires were paid for and it yeah it was the budget i I was wondering what kind of drove that decision to you you had the momentum three straight championships no one had ever done that um so i was wondering where that all came from we would i think we just went there because of that sponsor and taking care of the tires so Mm -hmm. We liked going over there. We went over there and did some races. We liked it. It was it's a good place to go do that, but boy, it's a high tractor. We've had multiple people on this podcast who have been, you know, very very they've excelled at Oxford and I've always asked them, "How do you get around that place?" Because it seems like it's the track that no one knows how to get around or those who know how to get around aren't telling anybody. Right. Yeah. Is that what it is? It's the place you just got to drive easier to go faster. I've had good races there, mm. but it's just, and it's different every week. You can leave there with a good car and come back and not even be close to where you were the week before. It's just so frustrating. So we look at the stats and we see 10 wins here, 12 wins here, nine wins here, three straight championships. Then you go to a different racetrack and you don't have the same level of success. Uh, what was that like for you? that year 1999 we were fairly competitive they that year at 99 they had 30 cars every week hmm. and who yeah. are you competing against at this point and tim brackett and uh jerry babb won the championship and brad hammond brad hammond the 71 car of uh, leland kangas jeff taylor jeff taylor no taylor was running bush oh he was yep Gary Drew, Sammy Sessions, Johnny Clark. Oh, 71. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. So there was, and we managed to win a race. We led the points from before the 250 because I got a provisional. And we led the points right till like three weeks to go. When you're leading the points, you got to start at the back. Mm. And before we even took off, we had a left rear flat. Oh, with no. no caution. And Jerry Babb. We ended up second, but I think if that it wasn't for that flat, we were in enough of a race that we'd have been fine for the championship there too. But it just didn't happen. When word comes that you're going to compete at Oxford for that year, did your reputation precede you? Oh yeah, I think Kaylee Oaks had written some stuff, and I think they knew because I had <laughs> raced with Sammy and some other people at Unity at Long John, and mm. so. Uh, let's talk about the Oxford 250. What was your first experience with that race? Uh, I think 98, I think, was the first time we went, the first year Ralph yeah, I, won. I, I counted like 10 times you took a run yeah. at the 250. Yeah. 
we we qualified every time when we went with Hank. We we were always underfunded, but we always qualified. We bought just enough tires to get where you needed to be. You never bought practice tires. And how much are you spending on tires for the two fifty weekend just to get by? We were spending a couple grand, and you needed to spend five. Jeez, just for that. Back short. then, yeah, just for that. Yeah, now it's even more. Now it's even. Now it's crazy. Uh, but the first time, you know, as a main main kid, right? I mean, you grew up. Probably, did you watch the Getty Opens, or did you know about those preceding the two hundred and fifty? You go back that far. I had gone to Beatridge and watched some of that mm. when it was dirt. So then the um, you know the Oxford two hundred and fifty comes around. Obviously, it's the biggest it's the biggest dog out there. It's the biggest race in Maine. What's it like to be on the grid in front of those massive stands being introduced? It was it was awesome. I, the first time I went to the. Oxford 250, there was a guy in town that was a drag racer. He was going in 1984, so I was like 17. Mm. That was the first time I watched it from the bottom row of the pit stands. It was, I think it was still a bush race then, and Mike Rowe won the race, but it was awesome. And then to go back... But to actually, actually be part of it, yeah. ...was awesome, all the people. and Because back in the day, I mean, they get a lot of cars now, but I mean, there would be 90 yes. cars trying to make that race. And how, you said you qualified every, every single time. What was your worst draw? Like, what's your biggest story of having to qualify for the race? I think one year with Jay, we, we went through every race to the last chance race. Wow. Quali- kept moving our way up, but we made it in the race. Terrible draw, though. Terrible draw. Terrible draw. Well, you mentioned Jay Cushman. Um, that starts, what, 2003? 2002, somewhere around there? 2002, I had went to, we had went to Bangor and run a pass race with Hank's guy. I can't remember if we won or got a third. And we had planned to go, we went and hopped in an RV and went to 660 to run the 250 up there with Jay. Mm. And there really wasn't any plans of driving for Jay, but. Was he planning to drive that race himself? No, no. He, he had he had just he had Louis Mitchellitis driving this car, and they had just parted ways. Hmm. And he had been to that race two years in a row, uh, actually since it started. So, how long had you known Jay before uh, hooking up with him in, in Nova Scotia? Not a lot. I think like the year before that, he was he was down a couple times with Louis and stuff for the couple hmm. of two hundreds I won. They they had raced them both, and I had talked to him here and there. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you guys met? Or, like, how did that phone call go down? Excuse me, that's probably a better question. How did the, how did the connection between you and Jay Cushman, because it was such a successful partnership, how did that, where was that seed planted? I think it actually was through the grapevine. I heard it from Kyle Hankson. He says, Cushman is telling people that you're already driving for him next year. And, wow. And then we had called and got together. For was, a brash guy, yeah. I would say that's a good feather in the cap, right? Yes, yes. Was the split with Harold at that time a kind of an amicable split, or did you have aspirations to go a little higher, and they just didn't have the funding to go? I really didn't have aspirations to go higher, but we had done that race and talked, and we talked about racing the, the past hole with Jay, and then I had made my decision and come back, and Hank still lived at the top of the hill, and that was probably one of the hottest. I went in and sat. He was sitting in his recliner. I sat on the couch for 20 minutes before I got the balls to tell him that I was. Because you guys of, were coming off five championships in yes, six years, yes. and just yeah. why would anybody want to put a break, right. you know, put a halt yeah. to that success? But well, that's a good always, question, Ken. Yeah, why would you want to put a halt to that success? Just to go, just to travel and do the. Mm. And how did that? How did that conversation at the once you finally uh, delivered the news? Pretty good, and there was. Did no, he know I, it was coming? 
I probably sure he did, but there was there was no hard feelings, and it, it sucked. I I sat there forever. I don't even know what was on TV, but it came out of my mouth several times, and I never said it. And, well, it, kind of getting in the racer's mentality, too. I mean, you must have – there's only so much success you can handle. Did you feel like you needed to be challenged? Like yeah. this, you had succeeded as probably as much as you can at this track. Um, was there just a need to – to challenge yourself there was we were venturing out ourselves we had won a pass race at bangor and hinkscar and run good went to star and went to seekonk and we had done good but i he would put all the money that he had and i think financially it was if we kept going the way we're going it just i don't think it would have worked we're talking about the early days of the pro all-star series tour were you ever part of nepsa did you have any uh, any work with that or any starts with them? Yes. I actually won a NEPSA race here and finished top three at Bangor and won a pole here. We we did – there was a Summer of Scissor series that we went to that went to Unity, Bangor, and mm. like in 95, and then NEPSA started. We finished second to Ralph at um, Bangor in a NEPSA race. I had a real good car, and on the restarts – I was beside him, could almost get him, and he'd have going into turn three. He'd have me up on pit road, mm. and Hank would come on the radio and said, "I don't know why you're trying. He ain't gonna let you pass you. He's just gonna wreck you." So finish second, yeah. <laughs> and then you go to the next year with Jay, wreck him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a different car. And we got along well. Push you around. Yeah. Can you uh, expand on on your experience with Nepsa? Are you surprised that that didn't go any further than it did? It was doing well for a while, but. I think it was just expen- that it was expensive for the time. To back up for those of our, our younger listeners, now this uh, NEPSA was something that came out of the demise of the ACT Pro stocks in the mid-90s, and it was basically kind of the, uh, well, well, the in-between of what became the Pro All-Star Series. Um, what yeah. was your favorite track to run on for NEPSA? Because I'm sure that was probably the first time you get to run around a lot. I liked running here, but I mm. actually, now that I think of it, I did win a NEPSA race because... It was. I had a good race. Mike Rowe was running it in the twenty-four car, and Jeff mm. Stevens was there. We were trading the wow. September of nineteen ninety-six. Was it right here? Yeah, there was one at Bangor too. Yeah, because we were there with a Saturday night car with a two barrel with Saturday night gears, and I think you could be ten nine nine, and they were there with their built big motors and more gear and four barrels, mm. and I ended up winning. Jeff Stevens and Mike get into it. Stevens finished second, and I'm not sure who finished third, but they was going to CC the motors. And ours was 11 to 1, just over. And the tech man for Bangor said, well, on Saturday night race, the motor's hot. That would be... And I was outside the building, and they were going to... They were going to throw us out, and you could hear Hank hollering from inside the building. <laughs> right. We're not giving up enough to these guys that you're going to throw us out. But they didn't throw us out, and it was one of them good races. So how did you beat guys like Mike Rowe and Jeff Stevens at a track that you have virtually very little experience at? Actually, the first time I went up there, I put it right off in the tires. They thought I was going out to the highway. So. Yeah, well, pretty much everybody has at <laughs> yeah. some point. It seems like everybody has. But after that, yeah. something just clicked about I could get around on the outside. You can't go up there today and run the outside where I was running because nobody does. They actually run the bottom more. But, mm. but there was like three or four years there that we really went good up there. Mm. So NEPSA ends. Um, 
what was your perspective of that? Were you part of NEPSA when that was going down? No, I just, just as showing up and racing with them. Yeah. We weren't part of any of the meetings. Or- Pro All-Star Series comes around. It's 2002. Um, Hink's not, you know, there are definitely teams that have more money and they're putting more money into it. How much money are we talking about early days Pro All-Star Series to run the full season? We we just picked and choose, so but I bet I think they had seven or eight races, and you're spending a couple of grand a race, so wow. fourteen eighteen thousand dollars just to do the races. Right. And then you got to have the equipment to do it. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that I think put pass on the on the map was right here at Wiscasset. Uh, Ken. Give us a little background on on some of the early 2000s days here at Wiscasset, which leads to the big dog. Well, uh, Dave St. Clair obviously had been running the track for a while, and I wouldn't say they were getting burnt out, but he obviously would entertain an opportunity for somebody to come in and run the track for him. So uh, Tom Mayberry stepped up and decided he wanted to lease Wiscasset Speedway, and this was in 2003. How far removed is this from Tom's driving days? Not very Not long. Very uh, I, I remember calling some of his races here at Wiscasset in 92 and 93 when he was uh, racing pro stocks. So he was maybe five or six years removed from racing at the time mm. when he when he launched pass. Um, so he took over Wiscasset Speedway for 2003. And um, again, it was the early days of pass. And uh, he wanted to put on a big race uh, that would attract a nationwide audience drivers from down south and such so even did, though it didn't stick yeah because i think it was to rival the oxford 250 and when the oxford 250 or oxford 200 came around it became the 250 i mean it was drawing people from all it draws people from all around the country now but i mean the big draw was the money yeah and the prestige with it so this big dog 400 richest race ever run in the state of maine uh, $100,000 to win race. I mean, from a from the, the Saturday night driver who's running a handful of NEPSA and pass races, what are you guys thinking when you, you got a $100,000 to win race here at your home track? It, it was awesome, and knowing my history and running good here, we thought we had a good chance. I don't think we had a real good season that season, but when we come to that race, we took the big carburetor off and put a four-barrel on, and we were spot on that weekend. So Scott felt pretty good about going into the Big Dog 400, but things took a turn for the worse. So we have some restarts. He runs me high, he runs me low, and coming out on the backstretch, I get underneath him. And coming he chops me. too, yeah. And around we both go, and it broke the right front tie rod, so I was done. And that was with 18 laps to go, and if I'd ever got in front of him, he was there because of attrition. He wasn't there because he was not good all weekend. But if I could ever get... In front, it would be a different story. That story and more next time out on Open Trailer Podcast. I'm Andy Austin. Share, subscribe, and tell a friend. Thanks for spreading the word. <laughs>